Hello, my name's Jane Dacre. Welcome to the second season of Medical Women Talking. The podcasts are made up of conversations with some amazing women doctors who've had incredible careers. Being a woman and a doctor can be challenging, but these conversations are designed to be shared to help those women aspiring to fulfilling careers and to leadership roles. We hear a lot of negative stuff about medicine these days, but these inspiring stories show us that medicine can still be brilliant. Listen and be inspired. Today I'm talking to Megana Pandit. Megana started her career as an obstetrician and gynaecologist, but got into NHS management. She's now the chief executive of Oxford University Hospitals. This is an extraordinary achievement. She's the first Indian woman chief executive of an NHS trust. Let me start by saying that I never imagined in my entire life and career that I would be a CEO, let alone the CEO at Oxford University Hospitals. And there's a reason for that. So I um, started my medical training. I was born and brought up in, in India, in Bombay, which is now Mumbai. And I went to medical school in Mumbai. I was a national scholar um, in 1984. And I was in one of the top medical schools in in Bombay, um, linked to the King Edward Memorial Hospital. Um, It was a great, great five five years, you know, lots of uh, learning and lots of fun. And then uh, I met someone and I fell in love with them. And that person uh, lived in Oxford. So uh, I moved to Oxford. I got married. I moved to Oxford in 1991. And the day I arrived here, it was minus 11. And I was coming from 35 degrees Celsius. And it was a culture shock. But of course, I was. I had traveled widely before with my parents. And it, it was just the feeling that this is not a holiday. I'm here and my life has changed. Um, that that was the feeling that suddenly sort of caught me unawares. Um, but I've I've had right from that day absolutely fantastic support from my husband and my family, and that is pretty much what has enabled me to do what what I have done and what I do today. And that's from every aspect, from the way I was raised, the values that I have and I bring with me every day, uh, and and when things don't go so well, the support that I need. So. Um, of course, when I said I, I trained in Mumbai and I had to come here, I had to sit the plan. And um, that that was, you know, that was a culture shock. My parents-in-law were both GPs. And um, it was in those days I sat in, in with my mother-in-law in her surgery, GP surgery, and sort of just got to understand how we interact with people, uh, how we you know, take a history and examine people, very different to what happens in different parts of the world, actually, um, in, in the way it's conducted. And uh, I sat the plan, and my first job was at St. Mary's Hospital in Paddington. But before I get to that, I'll tell you the connection with Oxford. So I was living in Oxford, and my husband is also a doctor, and he uh, was doing his DPhil at the time, but he wrote to the professor of medicine in Oxford and said that his wife new wife uh, was sitting the plab and could I could I shadow uh, him and uh, on his firm and he graciously accepted me on his firm and that was professor John Leddingham who is absolutely fantastic and I will never forget um, the ward rounds that he did on busy medical wards um, and his team and I shadowed him 
And I used to walk down the academic corridor where my office currently is as the chief executive. And, um, you know, it, it was it was just a, a, a sort of a feeling where I've got my entire career to do. I still have to sit the plab and pass it. And I'm sitting in the Cairns Library in the John Ratcliffe Hospital. And, you know, what what's going to happen? I just have to focus on one thing at a time. Anyway, I passed the exam and I said to John, I said, I want to um, be an obstetrician gynecologist. And he looked at me and he said, why would you have won? Why would you do that? Why would anyone want to do that? <laughs> well, I have to say, I was going to ask you. I was going to <laughs> so uh, I said, no, no, I, that's, that's what I want to do. And I wanted to do that. I wanted to be a gynecologist and obstetrician because I always felt there was a fantastic mix of medicine and surgery. And there was always an emotional component. And there was that quality of life component, which which I wanted to improve for women. And my, one of my aunts was a gynecologist. Actually, she 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 I was born in her clinic. But anyway, so I he said, well, if that's what you want, that's fine. But look, the world is your oyster. And he wrote to me and I still have that letter. He said, the world is your oyster. You can do whatever you want. And, you know, there you go. So my first job was at St. Mary's Hospital in Paddington. And those early influences working with um, uh, Dame Leslie Regan, uh, Guy Thorpe Easton, uh, John Smith, and Frank Lerfler. They were the forming days. I mean, they gave me such a solid uh, framework and base uh, that, you know, it was a springboard for the rest of my life, really, not just career. And the first day on the first morning uh, when I went onto the ward and uh, Dame Leslie Regan came, she was the consultant. And I just, and the first thought I had in my head, you know, was, I want to be like that one day. And and it was extraordinary. <laughs> and um, yeah, I don't think I, so ever, ever, I, I don't think I'll ever get to be like her, but it'll it is it's taught oh, I me. I don't know. I'm interviewing I'm interviewing uh, Leslie Regan as well. Okay, so, well, well there we'll, you go. We'll have you both. We'll have you both. She'll you be can very tell proud. her that. Yeah, you can tell her that. But anyway, so uh, that was a really good time. And then I did lots of lots of SHO jobs, as one does. R lots of hard work commuting from Oxford to London and then commuting. And then I spent two years in Oxford as the, as, a, as this SHO. I had some trouble, I have to say, in passing my part one. I just wasn't interested in doing exams. I just moved countries. I was, you know, I was changing my life. I changed. And I was just wanting to relax really, but I kept sitting the part one MRCOG, I eventually passed it. And the next really good phase in my career was when um, I went to America. I went to Ann Arbor, Michigan. My husband and I both went there for a year to work. Uh, I was visiting lecturer there with Professor John Delancey. He's the professor of urogynecology who actually discovered, well, described the first person to describe the continence mechanism in women and the pelvic floor anatomy. And I worked with him and, you know, he, he is an amazing person. I mean, obviously, I'm still in touch with him. Firstly, the resources available for research in America were eye-wateringly different to what we had uh, or still have. Um, and, uh, and the learning in terms of just anatomy and, and clinical work, different operative techniques and research methodology from him was, was really fantastic. And the thing he said to me when I got there was, 
what do you want to achieve? You know, you have a small baby. The weather here is dreadful. Uh, you'll want to travel. So what do you want to achieve in your year with me? And I said, well, if I get at least one peer-reviewed publication and an ability uh, and an opportunity to speak at a large conference, I'd be happy. And he said, that's fine. We'll get that done. And uh, you know, all that learning about research and learning about prioritization, learning about how do you speak when you're speaking to an audience of 2000, you know, all of that. And I got three papers out of it. I got uh, and also got I, I spoke at large conferences and I won two prizes. I won actually the Young Gynecologist of the Year Award. And I was um, I received that in the con at the conference, our COG annual conference in Cape Town in 19. I believe it was must have been 2000 or 1999. And that was a very proud moment. But when I came back to and this is where it all sort of started going a little wrong for me, and I don't know what I'd ever done to make it go wrong because I came back, I had a small baby and I was doing 16 hour shifts and that was really difficult. That was the start of the different hours of working. And believe me, I was commuting from Oxford to another hospital and doing 5 p.m. to 9 a.m. shift, seven nights in a row. Now, those are undoable. So how far were you commuting? People often uh, have an hour, about an hour's commute. An hour added so, to your yeah, long day. Both ways, hours. With a small baby. Yeah, so, that, so I, I chose to go flexible at that point. And... I wasn't treated very well when I said, can I train flexibly? Uh, and um, anyway, I, I said, you know, I carried on. I said, that's what I have to do for my family and to continue my career. And I, um, when I got to CCT, uh, I, I had, I mean, you know, I had people say to me things like, um, your face does not fit. Uh, I had people saying to me, we're not going to give you a job here because you'll take away our private practice, uh, you know, all sorts of things. And I just thought, well, why would I want to work in this unit if that's what they say to me? That's that's not I, I'm not going to let go of what I've learned from John Delancey and what I've learned since then three years. So four years of solid urogynecology learning. Why would I give that up? That's not the right thing to do. And why would I want to work with people who tell me my face doesn't fit? So I this was, um, this was back in the UK, was it? it yes, was in yes, the, yes. Back in yes, the NHS. Yes, yes. In London or outside London? Um, in the hospital where I'm the CEO now. Okay, gosh. Yep. Yep. Don't get mad, get even, Megan. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so anyway, so um, I, I, I took a job in a DGH. I went to, because they actually phoned me and said, we want to advertise a Eurogyne job. Are you interested? And I said, yes. And that was an hour long commute again from Oxford. So I went there and I was a consultant there for nine years, actually. And the first, I mean, it was hard work. I mean, it's bad enough to be a new consultant, but this was really difficult. Uh, and uh, the unit was going through, uh, a bad time. There were, you know, we got to sort of two years, three years into job in my role as consultant and found that there were poor outcomes. You know, the, the trainees were giving bad GMC survey results, lots of complaints, disharmony amongst consultants and unhappy 
staff generally. And I thought this can't be, this can't be right. Why is this happening? And I said, I went to the medical director and I said, I'd like to be the clinical director, please. And they said, you know, it was very wise advice. And they said, look, you've been a consultant for what, three years? Uh, I think you need to sort of maybe go and get some training somewhere about how to be a clinical director and, and then we can think about it. So I did just that. I went to the King's Fund uh, and I was, I did a, not a long, but a two week course on how to be a clinical director. Uh, and about six months later, I came back to the medical director and I said, well, I've done the course you recommended. So I would still like to be a clinical director, please. And he said, OK, well, look, the current person's term is going to come up and we're going to re-advertise, but they're likely to uh, apply again. And I said, that's fine. I'm used to competition. Uh, and um, and I said to all my colleagues, I'm going to put my hat in the ring to be a clinical director. And one of the senior colleagues, a man colleague, said to me, oh, if I were you, I wouldn't apply because um, the top corridors told me that I'm going to be given the job. So you will only be embarrassing yourself by turning up to the interview and not getting it. And I said, well, that's fine. So you this know was what? a competitor. Yes. A competitor. Yes, yes a competitor. So, so I said, no, that's fine. I, I, I will, I will be interviewed, and I can see, I'll see you there. And of course, he didn't turn up to the interview. Uh, he just wanted perhaps me to withdraw so that there would be no obvious person, and then he might have been asked. I don't know. But anyway, so I, I. So, did you want to do it? Why did you want to do it? So just I'm coming to, to that. Recap. So, so yeah, so okay. I'm coming to that. So I wanted to do it because I had a strong desire to get things right. I, I did not want to just complain about the outcomes and the and and things not being positive. I, I didn't want to sit in the background saying, oh, somebody else is not doing it right or somebody else is not providing me help with digital. Somebody else is not providing me help with admin support. I wanted to say, OK, I, I, somebody needs to fix it. And I'm willing to give it a try to fix it. And I have gone and got the training about how to be a clinical director. And I am putting my hand up to say, I will try and fix it. Here are my ideas. Here are my ideas to remove waste from processes, to make things efficient, to create frameworks of behavior, create frameworks for trainees and create a program for trainees and all this sort of thing. And I did get that job as clinical director and I was very fortunate to work with the newly appointed head of midwifery and a newly appointed general manager. And they're still my friends to this day. And we over the next three years, literally working with the team that we had, the people in the department, we turned it around. And, you know, I was no longer standing in front of the television camera apologizing to a family. You know, we were celebrating good outcomes. So that was a really nice thing. And I thought I'd really liked it. And I had a very busy clinical practice at that time. And, um, and then the organization uh, were appointing divisional directors. So I, again, I, I then was I asked if I would like to be a divisional director and I became a divisional director for women and children's division. And it sort of gave me a buzz. I felt that I was being effective on a larger scale, that I was able to influence outcomes for a larger number of people than the person right in front of me. You know, of course, I loved my clinical practice, you know, and and. I loved my patients. I uh, loved being in theatres operating, but this was just a different challenge. And I found it very uh, stimulating 
to to try and make an impact uh, and a positive change for pe in people's lives. And um, I thought, OK, I'm doing all these things, but I wonder if there's a theory that describes all these changes and behaviors I'm trying to make because I didn't always get it right then. You know, sometimes I was I was um, I wanted to just go ahead and set uh, in a pace setting way. Other times I, I I sort of maybe didn't speak to the right people at the right time. And I thought, let me explore if there's a theory. And that's where the MBA comes in. So I uh, looked around to for an MBA and I found the Oxford Brooks Global MBA program, which was um, which was which could be done as as one as I worked. And I took that up in 2011, in the summer of 2011, I started doing it. And suddenly one day I saw that there was a job being advertised at University Hospitals Coventry and Warwickshire uh, as the chief medical officer. And I thought, well, that would be a nice thing to do. I really like what I'm doing. And the MBA is fascinating. I'm learning a lot. And um, I, I remember people saying, but why would you want to do that? You've got a great job. You're a divisional director. You're doing so well. And your patients love you. And your colleagues in the hospital are great. And the hospital is going great guns. They're going to join up with new Buckingham University soon. So why do you want to move? And I said, well, because... I think I like the thought of being a chief medical officer in a bigger hospital to have a bigger impact. And I went there and I was interviewed and I got the job. And I thought, I, I literally, to this day, I feel like I hit the lottery on that day when the CEO of that hospital, Andy Hardy, phoned me to say, I'd like to offer you the job of the CMO. I could not believe it. And that that really changed my life because... Uh, when I went in, I didn't know very much, but I had very supportive colleagues. I had two deputy, or I had two deputies who were appointed before I started the job, and a director of quality. And Paul, Andy, and Mike were so supportive and superb in the way they shepherded me through the first eighteen months. And you know, I I felt you know when one moves hospitals at that level, you feel like you're an outsider. You come into a new family and everybody's looking at you going, oh, what are you going to do or say? And you don't really know what's gone on in that hospital. You don't know who gets on with whom or who is married to whom. And many people are in a hospital working together. You don't have that history. But I think that helped me and, and the support that I helped certainly did. And uh, I was there for almost seven years as a CMO. And I cried when I left because it was did like a family. Did, they, did you carry on your clinical work at that stage? I did. I did. So when I went there in 2012, I stopped doing obstetrics, but I carried on doing one day of gynecology. Uh, it was a it was a big job. University Hospitals Coventry had about 400 consultants then, a staff of about 8,000, and based on two sites, one in Coventry and one in Rugby, and linked to Warwick Medical School. Um, so it was a big, big place. But you know, I thought, okay, I could do one day of gynecology, but over. So I carried on doing that. I think in in 2018, probably I changed to just one or to half a day rather than one whole day. I stopped operating, I think, in about 2015, but I carried on doing outpatient procedures and a clinic. And I had great colleagues there and um, I learned a lot whilst I was CMO. Um, uh, one of the things I did was I uh, started a master's program in uh, at Warwick University in healthcare management. 
which has which is now oversubscribed. It's a great master's uh, program. I still teach on it. Uh, I also uh, managed to um, uh, be there exactly at the right time when um, there was a partnership with Virginia Mason Institute. Virginia Mason Institute is a small hospital in Seattle uh, who uh, are regarded as one of the safest hospitals in North America following their adoption of lean methodology, which they learned from Toyota Motor Industry. And they've been doing that for 15 years. And um, Jeremy Hunt, who was then Secretary of State for Health, uh, had been there and really was impressed with what they did and said, well, I will fund. He funded five hospitals to be partnered with Virginia Mason Institute so that the NHS could understand and learn that, uh, learn uh, about lean methodology and waste reduction. And you know, there were people cynical about it, but actually that has been a fantastic program. And that's what uh, gave me my passion for quality improvement. Uh, and and I, I firmly believe that quality improvement is about respect for all, uh, respect for the people who do the work and uh, enabling them to make change. And my role as, as, you know, the chief executive is to facilitate the change that they want to happen and unblock any obstacles that they have in their way. Uh, what I also did when I was in Coventry was leg change programs. So here I was, you know, doing my MBA and actually using what I'm learning on the MBA to translate that and implement that into the work I was doing in the hospital. So I wrote, uh, I led on the writing of the clinical strategy. Uh, I led change programs. And one of the change programs I led along with Mark Radford, who was the chief nurse at the time with me in Coventry, was getting emergency care right. And we saw the A&E performance improve uh, from about eight, low 80s to 96% within six weeks because of this change program that we led. And it stayed like that for about seven, eight but months. And the four-hour wake. The four yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait. Yeah. yeah. And sure. and and the whole the whole country was watching, and I remember going talking about the change program everywhere, and it was such a buzz in the organisation because everybody's work got easier and better, and patients were, you know, served a lot better than waiting on in the corridor. Uh, I also led finance improvement programs, and I also led operational productivity, particularly in theatres. So I was doing a lot, and I became a deputy CEO at the time as well. But I think. Success as a CMO, as the chief medical officer, really came from being from compassionate leadership. So really from listening, understanding and empathizing with people, from creating supporting supportive environments for staff, for really implementing very well quality improvement in the organization, learning to fail. And failure is not bad. If you fail, you move forward fast. I think that's really important to understand. But also maintaining a relentless focus on patient safety and staff welfare and always putting patients at the center of everything we did and I still do. So that really thing, I think, is where success came as a CMO. Um, and then uh, Oxford came calling. So in January 2019, I became chief medical officer at Oxford. And... Um, I remember being told that my main task when I was appointed was to improve the safety culture in the organization. And I thought, okay, so I've come back after 16 years when I was told my face doesn't fit and I have to now change, improve the safety culture. Isn't that interesting? But that was fine. We, we had I remember visits. 
like yes. I remember visits to Oxford uh, before you came. Yes. I, I remember having the discussion with you. It was a very unhappy place. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's really interesting. Anyway, yeah. car carry on. So, so, um, so I, you know, I didn't say, well, here I come having won the, you know, HSJ Patient Safety Award for Coventry. Here I've come and I'm going to change everything. I, that clearly was not the way. I think I was wiser now and, and slightly different from when I had been a clinical director. And uh, I said, OK, look, here are the things we could think about doing, you know, and we introduced safety messages. So every Tuesday, a safety message has gone out since February 2019 in this organization from the chief medical officer and chief nurse every single Tuesday without fail. And these are just learning points. They're bullet points that are expressed as learning from incidents or from mortalities. Um, I started uh, a pilot of a patient safety response team where senior doctors, nurses and governance practitioners review the harm incidents that have happened in the previous 24 hours with a view to making sure that the area is safe today, that there is no ongoing risk and that duty of candor has been delivered. And also doing a quick review of why this happened and can it be, can it, can, 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 is there any learning from it so it doesn't happen again? We started that as a pilot and people said, oh, but how are we going to do this? There are four sites, you know, it may never work, you know, da, da, da. And now I don't have to go to it. It carries on every single day as a patient safety review team. People have written emails to say, thank you very much for this. We cannot believe how supported we feel as staff. And, you know, as a result of all of these things, including safety huddles, there is no blame culture now, whereas there was previously. So the reporting rates are high, uh, the learning is high, and for instance, the number of never events has dropped sharply. Uh, there was something like 11 when, when I came, and then there were two, and you know, gradual drop from 11 to six and two, and, and now we are stabilized you know, at, at around three or four or five. Uh, but there is learning. So you've, you've moved up now to being I moved to up. executive, but, coming you, to that. but you did it as, a, as a, an interim to start to? Start yeah, I, 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 yeah, I'm coming to that. So within a year of within a year of being uh, uh, starting all those safety uh, changes, COVID came uh, in March 2020, and it was really about continuing those things and not saying, "Oh my God, there's chaos, there's COVID. We need to stop this and re and just focus on something else." I said, "No, we've got to keep going with the safety because this is more important now than ever." Uh, and, and I think that's what sort of made sure that this organization realized that the focus was on safety. And then um, uh, after three and a half years as a CMO, I, I, I yeah, I, I became, I thought, you know, my predecessor, my CEO re retired and there was an opportunity for somebody to be a CEO. And I said, I put my hand up because I've done 10 years as CMO. I think I've learned lots. I think I have, I have things I can offer. And I would like to do it. So I was initially appointed as a fixed term CEO for six for one year. But within six months, the board, the trust board decided to uh, start a process of appointment of a substantive CEO. And um, I was interviewed competitively again. And I was appointed in March as a substantive CEO here at Oxford. And it's a privilege to be in this role. It's a fantastic role. There's lots to give and lots to get done. And I presented a vision to the organization uh, and the board, uh, which is based fundamentally around our people, 
patient care, productivity and partnerships. Um, and, you know, th there has to be change. And that change has to come into, it comes in several forms. One, I would definitely say that there should be kindness to each other and uh, end to bullying and discrimination. Um, there should be introduction of management and leadership in the medical curriculum, which I'm working with Oxford University now, which is the best medical school in the world. And I really feel that people should be open to change and be engaged with change. Uh, and and regard every challenge as an opportunity uh, to shine because you know that's what challenges are and um, humility is a lot better than arrogance uh, and working as a team is really important and I think some people realize it too late but teamwork actually does work and ultimately I think fundamentally it's all about compassion collaboration and clear communication so that better never stops. Fantastic. So that's such a wonderful story. Uh, I notice your your is it alliteration, your partnership, patient care. Yes. Uh, you, and then compassion, courtesy. Yes. Uh, I used to do that, the RCP, so I could remember. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, but it is, it, it, you, you describe it all really well. So can I just, uh, we, we're coming towards the end now, but I just want to ask you some sort of specific questions in terms of uh, general reflections, which is highs and lows. Is there anything you would like to highlight as the maybe the best bit and the worst bit in that in that career journey? Um, so the highs, uh, highs definitely are um, my, uh, you know, my time in Coventry and in America and also being the CEO. Those are my highs, yes. absolute highs. Uh, the laws uh, are, I've alluded to them, the laws are about being, you know, bullied, uh, bullied as a junior doctor. Uh, and and just, it was very hard. It was very hard at times when I was bullied. And so was that, it sounds as if some of that was around the time that you were a bit more vulnerable, you had a young child. Um, so how many children do you have? And has the uh, impact? Has there been an impact of you being so successful in your professional career on your family life? Some people say that it causes difficulties. So, um, well, I don't think it, I, well, it may be that, I mean, I don't know if I had more children, would I be in, in the same place I'm now? I don't know. It's very difficult to answer you because I don't think child. it best. I have one child. I have a 25-year-old son uh, who is absolutely fa fantastic. Um, but you see, my issue was slightly different, which was that my husband was in a very busy specialty as well, which is anesthetics. So he was doing anesthetics while I was doing obstetrics and gynecology. <laughs> and those are the two busiest specialties. Crazy. Yes. Crazy. And, and also, uh, unfortunately, my parents-in-law passed away early. So what that meant was that we were entirely reliant on nannies and au pairs. And that I think that 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 it wasn't my career. It was it was that uh, that meant that we only had one child. Yeah, and and it, and childcare is an absolute nightmare to it lots is. of it is. young women coming it through. I, I, I mean, think it's even know, worse now. Yeah, I mean, there were times when I remember a time when I was operating and actually my husband was anesthetizing that list and suddenly my bleep went off, and it was that my son had fallen in the nursery. 
uh, it was a hospital nursery, but he'd fallen and 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 he needed attention. So, you know, we both looked at each other and thought, who's going to go? Who's going to leave? So I had to then say to the consultant, can you please take over? I've got to go because my son needs attention. You know, it's those sorts of things. Yeah, <laughs> it's very difficult. Absolutely. It is. It is very difficult. So so when these those things have happened, just that last that last thing now, what what's helped you? What's helped you to get through? You've mentioned um, some mentors, but just generally, what what do you think helps? So. Um, my husband has been an absolute rock. Uh, he he has helped uh, every single time. Um, and then just doing things like you know going on holidays. Uh, I like I like to cook, so I cook a variety of of cuisines, uh, which 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 I absolutely love uh, doing. And I I can switch off. I can play the music and cook, and that takes me to another world. And then the other thing I do more recently over the last 10 years is fishing. Uh, I, I I think that is the most therapeutic thing in the world. And I like to fish. My husband likes to ski. My son loves skiing. So we go to North America and um, I go fishing and they go skiing. And it's it's wow. well, amazing. Fly fishing? Yes. Fly fishing? Yes. yes. Wow. Fantastic. Yes. I shall well, do listen. a lot of it when I'm retired, which I do. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Excellent. So, so Megana, it's been a pleasure to talk to you today. So just to remind everybody that Megana is the first female CEO in Oxford and the first female person of colour who's the chief executive of a large acute trust. So Megana, thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Medical Women Talking. It's been a privilege to spend time with all these medical women I hope you've enjoyed listening to this season. Don't forget, there are many other interviews in season one.